Welcome back to Politik the Podcast. My name is Pamandam Mshongo, and for this week we've got Usamgele Mkhize, who's going to join us for a bit of analysis in terms of the financial well-being of our country and where we're headed. Um, Mr. Samgele Mkhize, um, welcome to Politik the Podcast. Um, and here Thank we you. try and uh, create conversations uh, with professionals like yourself that will get us into a space of actually understanding the mechanisms of how how various institutions are functioning how we can play a role and what we have to look forward to or actually be sort of in angst about um as you would know um, but i think it's important that we start off with a bit of um understanding ugo to an for who are you where do you come from um and what's your profession how did you get into that profession Uh, thank you very much Ndumane. So I'm from Durban. I studied at uh, UKZN, Howard College. Uh, we studied together uh, yeah. for, for, for <laughs> quite a bit of that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I did uh, an LLB, completed an LLB and then I then moved up to Johannesburg to complete articles uh, at a law firm on this side uh, at Weber Wenzel. I then left uh, left the firm as so I completed my articles. I then practiced for about a year and a half in telecommunications, media and technology. And then from there, I then uh, decided to move more into the financial technology space and that regulatory environment and uh, decided to move into banking. Yeah. And I think the, <clears throat> the reason for moving into banking for me has always been that. So I've always been a regulatory lawyer. I've always enjoyed uh, regulatory developments and monitoring how that impacts and dovetails with the economy. And I thought that the, I, I would great, I would gain great uh, exposure and experience at the, in in your in your big banks and big financial institutions. And then I'm also maybe in addition, I'm also currently reading for a, a master's in pension funds law at the University of the Witwatersrand, Wits. And that's also been very interesting. So yeah, I think it's uh, that's that's me in a nutshell. No, that's pretty cool, man. I remember you saying whilst we were studying how interested you are in sort of mining um, and the, the potential avenues that you could have explored there. Um, is this still in line with that dream? Interestingly, it certainly is. So, so, so I'll tell you. So, so during articles, I did quite a bit of work on the uh, in the mining industry, but more from a, a regulatory and policy side. So we'd often advise. The DMR and also your your big mining houses. So I think the the move into financial services was obviously more for me just to understand the the finance behind it because if you if you look at how the economy works now, a lot of mining uh, takes place at a transactional level as opposed to uh, you know your your open cast and, and heavy mining. So I think. I think I still enjoy. Um, I think I'm still very much intrigued uh, in uh, by mining and the industry, but uh, I think I've also very. I take. I also now take a very keen interest in uh, in the transactional side. So also, so, and, and during articles, I think I did a stint in project finance. Yeah. And a lot of our work there entailed work with mining houses, but more specifically on a pro- at a project level, be it energy projects and uh, uh, yeah, and projects of that nature. Okay. Cool. And then, of yeah. course, the elephant in the room is that we're we're working from home uh, <laughs> during a, a pandemic, <laughs> during a crisis. Yeah. Um, how's that sort of impacted you and your and your working space in particular? Yeah, so I think um, 
we've obviously moved into the fourth industrial revolution and it's all about uh you know corporates will tell you it's all about agility and the ability to work flexibly and to work and to optimize your your working space as and wherever you are yeah. so we've obviously i think so interestingly we were on we started working from home before the lockdown and mm. and we and we slowly eased into it so it's obviously it does pose challenges but i do believe it is the uh it's the way of the future i think people will need to have the ability to work remotely and to optimize their working spaces and whatever it is they need to do as and when they need to do it i think yeah. a lot of the time you've got professionals nowadays working out of coffee shops mm. um uh, which which um probably 10 15 years ago would have been unheard of you know you'd be castigated for being lazy but it's changed now i think people are obviously now more intrigued by the ability of working remotely and also at the same time living their lives parallel to to their careers Yeah, no, that's very cool. And what what would you say was the push from you guys starting um to work from home or easing into that space prior to the lockdown? Did you guys know something we didn't? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> you see you're going to start with conspiracy theory. <laughs> conspiracy theory. It's, it's <laughs> banks new before you guys knew before. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. So I think um I think it was just a precautionary measure from management. I think it was just to ensure that uh people would start uh one to um obviously contribute towards um easing or uh, reducing the the infection rate and ensuring that people stayed at home and uh were able to you know stay away from large groups and uh you know anything like that so i think that was probably the the push behind it and it worked well yeah no that's that's pretty cool man and I, and i think it was it was it was good foresight from your from your management even though you won't tell us what it is that they knew uh before the rest of us <laughs> um i think one of the biggest challenges for the lay person on the ground is sort of figuring out what their next financial move needs to look like what they uh need to sell off if they own assets what they need to sort of give back to the bank if they own liabilities such as cars and other things because we are in a situation where it's very difficult to predict what the next sort of wave of financial sort of crises will be um and looking at sort of global financially um it's 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 looking quite terrible <laughs> um we whilst we might be celebrating like low fuel costs in the interim there are other things that are increasing quite significantly um from sort of someone who's working in that sector what would you say are some of your observations in terms of how the the movements have been i know that this is not specifically something that you can you can discuss in detail but on a broad level um what are some of the shifts financially uh, and in and in, in our economy that you that you're sort of on the lookout for thanks brian so i think at a broad level there's obviously been a lot of talk of the the next economic and financial apocalypse mm. um, i think in a sense that if you if we if you've been analyzing global markets you'll see that you know the US economy for example which is one of the most resilient and largest economies in the world has shed more jobs than it's than it created post the 2008 financial financial meltdown and i think that's very telling as to the the impact the pandemic has had i think it's had very very it's had a tremendous impact on on jobs globally on the the ability for markets to to sustain themselves i think if we if we bring it slightly closer to home 
I think we I think we're starting to feel it. I think if you've been listening to the uh, minister for, minister responsible for labor, I mm. think he's been uh, making quite uh, quite a lot of noise around the the capacity constraints at the unemployment insurance fund and the the ability uh, or maybe inability of the UIF to sustain large numbers of people that are coming through in seek of uh, in search of of of, of some form of form of financial relief so i think that's had a very very serious impact in uh, in the economy very broadly and if we bring it to a very micro level i think we see it in the fact that people aren't spending as much people are spending very very conservatively i think um, we 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 i think we you know we we, we haven't seen um, great job losses just yet but obviously i think we're still i think the minister of health obviously of often this finds us as a as a storm that's coming slowly but surely so i think that we're still going to see uh, a lot of shifts in the in the economy and uh, yeah i think we we really need to brace ourselves in that regard yeah those are some scary things especially given the fact that quite a significant majority of our country is considered to be a part already part of the unemployment bracket when you factor in the new uh, sort of numbers of people who will lose employment over the next couple of months then the picture looks quite dire no no certainly i think if you look i think just last week edcon announced that it it would be filing for business rescue and that's uh, that's thousands of uh, thousands of employees uh, whose jobs are now at risk um, obviously i think the the business rescue process doesn't mean that people will lose jobs instantly it does however mean that in the future it it just gives the entity the ability to stave off debt obligations uh, for a for a set period and also carry out uh, significant uh, restructuring and often that restructuring does encompass job losses uh, to to uh, to what they say to to optimize the workforce which obviously is uh, unfortunately is often a euphemism for the fact that there will be <laughs> there will be job cuts yeah. and i think we've seen uh, we saw that with edcon i think edcon obviously was in a bit of a tricky position before i think last year they received a what is colloquially would be referred to as a bailout from one of the, from one of the largest shareholders being the PIC through a uh, a share an investor mandate which came from the UIF and the purpose had obviously been to i think in the discussions between labor and also uh, labor this uh, being trade unions and also management at Edcon and the UIF i think the uh, the the objective was obviously to save jobs unfortunately they've lost billions over the past few weeks and uh, it's now rendered the current debt cycle unsustainable and they've had to file for business rescue we've seen similar trends in our, in the aviation space i think saa was obviously um on the cusp of a breakdown for a very long time so it's not it's not particularly surprising that they've also now um you know they you know the business rescue practitioners are running out of money there um what a surprise uh, for me was in the form of Kame who last week of who've now also filed for business rescue so i think it's uh, well i think so some people are not sure if we're going to be left with any airlines after the lockdown imagine <laughs> but yeah. i think that, yeah look, i think and i think it's a, it's a serious crisis i think the um the, uh, the the industry the respective industries are certainly feeling the pinch but of course this is obviously almost a a culmination of various factors i think we've seen a very very constrained economy which hasn't been growing um for the past decade 
So this is uh, so I think the, um, the 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 pandemic was obviously a bit of a, a kick, uh, you know, last kick of a dying horse because it really just uh, it's like kicking a man when he's down. And I think we we also have encountered further strain in the form of um, credit down ratings, uh, credit downgrades, which have a, which which don't necessarily. And I think it's important to elucidate what those mean yeah. because often you'll find politicians. Um, Obviously, saying it makes no difference what the what the ratings agency says and and all of that, which is fine for we know, political we know, mileage. We, but we know which posi- political parties uh, say this. <laughs> and it, <laughs> well, I, I I'm not going to venture to politics today, Brian. Well, of course, we'll share that over a drink between you and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think importantly, what we see is that a ratings downgrade has uh, it, it's got a very very serious impact on your. It's uh, you know if if we were to bring it down at a personal level, it's like credit score, right? It's like the ability of investors to ultimately invest in your economy. Alternatively, the ability of creditors to loan to advance loans for you, loans to you. Now, if you don't have the the approval uh, or positive approvals or positive ratings from those agencies, it has a very negative impact in your ability to attract foreign direct investment and alternative investment. Of course. The counter argument to that has always been that why don't we focus on local economic development and local investment, which very strategically I think is what's the it's, is what the president and the minister of finance have tried to do in the form of uh, through the stimulus package. But we obviously need to ask how sustainable that is in the current climate, in a highly un, a very unindustrialized economy, which hasn't really been functioning op- optimally on its own for. For a while now, and I find it, um, you know, a bit strange that people will think that it will now pick up, um, yeah. you know, after you know after a uh, a crisis of this nature. Yeah, there, there's some real danger here because if you look at it, the 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 the, the downgrade happened probably two weeks before the lockdown was announced, um, and so when it when it happens that way. We're already like struggling. There's already people pulling out in terms of our government bonds, selling them off, and, and making sure that they don't have anything associated with us insofar as our investment investability. Um, and then you have the lockdown, which happens, which shuts down all industries, um, or at least the the ones that are non-essential. Um, and primarily in this country, most of our activity seems to be located um, in sort of the shopping center experience. So we have shops, we have sort of retailers rather, we have people that are going to movies and so forth. And that's sort of largely where the spending seems to happen because we don't have sort of a mature enough economy to sustain other forms of sort of financial movements. Um, at least there are very few people who, who are engaging in that sort of um, risk-taking insofar as making the right investments and so forth. So when you talk about the stimulus package that government is offering, um, what are they stimulating really? Um, if, 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 if we're at level four um, uh, of the lockdown period and the lockdown is likely to extend for another four months, six months, if people continue to behave like they are in the Western Cape um, <laughs> and other townships, <laughs> um, which seem to, people don't believe that this is a, a genuine crisis or don't, they, don't, they don't feel that the ways in which government is asking them to sort of pull back is beneficial to them personally. 
So with the stimulus package, what is what is it in actuality stimulating? I know that what 500 billion has been given towards welfare, but sure, then what happens thereafter? Yeah, so no, no, I think that's a very important point there, Brian. So I think it's important for us to firstly unpack the the nature of the stimulus package, right? So you firstly got, um, so there's two forms of stimulus here. So it's not just 500 billion because you've got monetary stimulus package, excuse me, which is in the format as was presented by the, the president and then um, consequently the, the minister as well, minister finance that is, presenting the monetary reforms which the government are going to implement. Um, you know, this, in, this would include um, a lot, a very, a, an extraordinary health budget. Uh, the purpose, I think it, it, it's in the region of about 20 billion rand. And the purpose mm-hmm. of which is to, is to um, you know, support, uh, you know, our local domestic healthcare services in the fight against the spread of the virus. I think the procurement of uh, protective personal equipment, um, you know, pharmaceuticals as well. I think, and, and those are very, very important components. But that doesn't necessarily directly speak to stimulating the economy. You've then got uh, an emphasis on social relief, right? So, so what's happened is the government has obviously now, uh, because of the fact that people, uh, a lot of a lot of households um, have potentially lost um, sources of income, there's now been an emphasis in ensuring that we we firstly look to the poorest of the poor, right? These are people who have um, don't have a, a history of being, um, you know, um, economically or financially active. And these are our grant recipients, and uh, there's been an increase in the uh, in what they receive, just to ensure that you know they're able to aid and abet the the ability of those people just to sustain themselves, you know, buy themselves very basic things such as food and and you know, and all of those things. We then also have a portion which is now obviously being reserved for. It's a bit of a, a an unemployment scheme which is also meant to provide for social relief for those who are unemployed and wouldn't now in, 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 the, in the context of the lockdown wouldn't have the ability to go out in search of work and search of employment or anything like that, you know, to hustle basically, you know, to put it mildly. So that's the, that's the purpose of that, uh, of that sort of relief. You then have relief which has been put in the form of uh, um, money which is intended to go to, uh, to, to, to business owners. And that is then to just give business owners the ability to uh, a bit of a lifeline, just to ensure that there is some money um, to um, coming in, just to ensure that when operations do ultimately resume, there is there's something to, you know, to work from. So that's so I think that deals specifically with that 500 billion rand um, cash cash injection. Um, the source of which obviously is very broad. I think it comes from various tax things like tax deferrals. Um, they they would obviously there's obviously been controversy around the um, the state seeking loans from the International Monetary Fund and World Bank and um, and the New Development Bank. I don't think we'll go into that for the purposes mm. of this discussion. Yeah. But um, you know, those are all there to ensure that they they work to the benefit of the stimulus package. You then have the, uh, the 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 monetary policy component, right? Sorry. So this component I referred to now was the fiscal policy component, which is yeah. which the government component. Now the monetary policy component is what we've seen from the Reserve Bank. Now what we've seen from the Reserve Bank, and if we observe the you know, just the meetings of the monetary policy, the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee over the past 
couple of months there's obviously been an, a drive towards ensuring that consumers have uh, consumers and citizens have as much relief as possible right so the, the purpose there has been to decrease the uh, you know the uh, the to put it to put it simply the rate of interest which people would uh, would need to pay back on loans and how that would assist them is that as soon as people are paying less for that it means people have more disposable cash uh, preferably to either save that cash pay off loans quickly alternatively to use the cash in the economy which is the purpose of it right it's called so you, so, so 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 often it's one of the very powerful instruments which a central bank has uh, being to ultimately you decrease uh, credit rates uh, interest rates and, and and your ability to do that means that your your repurchase rate which is your repo rate is also decreased which means banks also loan lend money out to people at a cheaper rate ultimately it's then just it's to increase liquidity in the system we want people we want money to exchange hands uh, a lot more frequently and to ensure that there's some sort of commercial activity because that's how an economy runs a secondary point which is also very important has been how the central bank has also embarked on a form of quantitative easing which isn't um I think I know a lot of people have described it very very simply I think it's probably got a connotation from money heist where people just print money <laughs> which isn't precisely that so what's been happening is we've currently seen um, the central bank purchasing government bonds on the secondary market which ultimately is when government would relieve your financial institutions and other big entities both foreign and domestic of the any 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 debt obligations from the state meaning that they would have more cash to use and to loan out right what we've also seen from the central bank are concessions in the form of the uh, capital reserve requirements in banks so in a uh, so in very plainly speaking what those are is the the amount of the amount of money a bank needs to hold with the central bank in order to you know to ensure it's liquid and also yeah. functional and often the purpose of that cash is to ensure that if um, if ever you know calamity were to occur the banks would always have the money to repay all its depositors yeah. now what we've seen is that there are certain concessions which have been provided um for banks to almost dip into that to ensure that they are liquid enough to to stimulate the economy and stimulate commercial activity so i think what we see is a very uh, very strong financialization of the way in which the economy is functioning currently and that's the that and and that's now the monetary policy component and i think if we were to combine it we almost have a, a stimulus package of close to a trillion rand right and the purpose there is obviously to to stimulate economic activity and to keep the economy going the downside of it of course has been that <clears throat> at times we we're not sure if there's going to be um one of of course there's the the trust deficit which the public has with respect to how the money is going to be used mm. um specifically because it's obviously going to go filter through to the various various governmental departments were then going to be used to stimulate economic activity you know department of small businesses department of trade and industry and competition your department of economic development you know so, so you know so those are you know that's the purpose of those um um you know that just you know just those departments you then also have uh uh you know so 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 what parliament has done and it's not really parliament in the form of the or the various ministries they've issued what you call and specifically here the department of trade and industry and competition 
Yeah. They've focused on what you call, they've issued what we call block exemptions. Now, if we understand how section four and section five of the Competition Act works, the purpose of those two sections is to ultimately uh, ensure that no collusion, price fixing or coordination takes place, which ultimately culminates in anti-competitive behavior. Now, what the DTIC has done in this instance is they've ensured that they've opened it up slightly. They've issued exemptions to ensure that industries, um, in intra-industry associations, um, the banking industries, it, it would be BASA, and you would have, which is the banking association in South Africa, and you'd have, you'd have similar industries in the retail space or you know the hotel industry as well. The purpose of those exemptions is to ensure that the your your role players in each of these industries are able to coordinate. Um, almost, I don't, you know, collude is a bad word, but it's ultimately what they do, right? They collude to ensure that they are able to develop products which will ultimately come to the aid of your financially distressed consumers mm -hmm. and also ensure that at a broad level um, it's able to salvage what's left of the economy. Of course, the safeguards behind it, for example, in the banking, banking, uh, in, in the banking industry, what you've seen is that insofar as institutions are able to do that the safeguards has obviously been that they can't do it with respect to price fixing so that, so you can't collude with respect to price fixing because that may have the unintended consequence of, of, of an anti-competitive culture for years or even decades to come yeah so in that respect what um, i think the safeguard and so, so 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 you don't have an unbridled form of coordination the safeguard has been that it needs to be firstly in consultation with the, with, you know, with the, uh, with the respective ministries, be it the DTI, DTIC, the Ministry of Health, or, um, or, 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 or the respective industry, industry committees. And it would also just need to ensure that the, the ultimate objective needs to be to firstly provide relief to, um, you know, to, um, to, to struggling consumers in this market. And then also importantly, to, um, to, to, to aid and abet the economy and resuscitate the economy in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah, so you've, got, you've gone through quite a bit there. Uh, so first was the economic stimulus package, which you unpacked in quite some detail. And then you also went, started go, to go into the block exemptions uh, that were granted in terms of the Competition Act. Um, what effects do you think in the short term um, these, these are likely to have consumers in particular, the block exemptions. Um, and then, of course, you did start to speak about the potential for it to create sort of long-term um, <laughs> poor uh, sort of playmanship they, they do, when, they, when, when they decide that they're going to form like cartels and stuff like that, um, of which I think Tiger Brands at some point was implicated in such. There was a, a milk scandal and, and there was a bread scandal in the past where they were price fixing the price of bread and the price of milk and so forth in, in, in those instances. Um, so in the short term, it's meant to do what? And then in the long term, um, what, what do we need to guard against in order to ensure that we don't get into spaces like that? Yeah, so in the short term, um, you know, I'll just make the example, for example, of the, uh, an example of the block exemption for the retail property sector. Yeah, and the purpose there is to ensure that your your big retailers in your and specifically we'll, we'll take your example of the malls that you raised earlier on. Now, one of the biggest overheads if you are running a, a big retail store is your rent. 
mm. and your your rental is your biggest overhead because your the landlords want you know they want their rent paid yeah. at a particular time now um you know just like just like everyone else who rents from a landlord now what happens in this instance is that where there's no money money coming in there does need to be some form of relief to ensure that you don't you don't ultimately collapse the the business of these retailers because i think the retail industry is a very important tertiary industry in our economy because it employs a lot of people so you want to ensure that happens so what you then do is that you provide some sort of debt relief um uh, relief with respect to the uh, the you know the payments tenants would, would ordinarily make to the uh, to the landlords and this is obviously to ensure that it just it just gives them a bit of cash to hold on to um to stave off any crisis in the future of course they do need to be repayment plans which which would be entered into and often i think i've just been listening to the experts on it um it's often advised that where where tenants um specifically big corporate or retail tenants find that they you know believe that they may be in a sticky position in the future it's best for them to proactively engage the landlords in that respect just to ensure that there's some form of agreement similarly if we look at the uh, the block exemption the banking sector i think a big a prominent uh, feature we've seen are the payment holidays which are ultimately there to ensure that people um, um consumers have some form of relief a uh, debt relief with respect to their their loan obligations be it your mortgage bonds your uh, bonds on your motor vehicles or you know first or 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 the unsecured lending space and the purpose of that is to ensure that people have some sort of relief i think it's um, a lot of the banks have come out and uh, have come out and given 3 month um 3 month periods within which people um within which people can um you know can can delay their payments i think the key word there is delay because they aren't they aren't extinguishing payments uh, the payments will still need to be made at a at a future at the stage undetermined time but it uh it just uh, the purpose of that is to give some sort of relief to your question on the the lasting impact of this so mm. the regulations have obviously been drafted in a in a in a way in a way as to ensure that the they don't culminate in unbridled collusion so the the ministry is obviously especially the DTIC has obviously kept uh you know the, in in the way in which they've drafted the regulations there's a great there's great emphasis on ensuring that the the uh the the price fixing component specifically is only done with approval uh, from the minister of the of the of the DTIC or or or, or any other relevant ministry in that regard and then also importantly there needs to be um you know the, that type of consultation consultation needs to take place and the objective the overriding objective uh which is going to be used as the yardstick in the future was was this done to ensure uh, to 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 aid the government's the government's um the government's um, uh, you know uh, aspirations of uh, resuscitating the economy and importantly curving flattening the curve and also staving off permanent economic consequences of the pandemic. Oh, okay. So there's a sort of proactive engagement between government and 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 these corporates. So corporates need to ask for permission to fix any specific price. Um if that's what I'm getting. And then furthermore, Correct. they if they are sort of retrospective sort of looks into the behavior of those corporates, there'll also be sort of a metric to adjudicate. whether this was done in good faith or not certainly certainly i think that yeah i think you've you've hit the nail on the head there. yeah okay now now even me i'm going to be an, an expert 
<laughs> no, I'm not the expert quite yet. <laughs> All right. No, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of, um, you mentioned earlier, the sort of potential work of the PIC in this space, mm-hmm. the Public Investment Corporation. Before we even get to what your view is, particularly as it is uh, something that you're doing in your master's, um, which is around pension fund laws. But in terms of, before we even get to, to that aspect of it, in terms of what we could be potentially doing better, um, is the PAC out of the woods yet? Uh, has the commission concluded its work? I, I, I'm, I, I, the thing that happens in this country is that some of the things are moments in time because so much happens within the course of a week. We forget that there are all of these commissions that are meant to be running. Um, we're dealing with so many crises that we've forgotten that there's so, still some accountability still left to be had um, on some of the, our sort of previous um, areas that we've, we've done either in government or in other public institutions. Is the PIC out of the woods yet? So, so I think the first thing is so. We, I'm not sure if a lot of people, obviously, I think the, uh, the, the report into what happened at the PIC came at the most inopportune time because it, it, was, the, it, it was released just before the, um, you know, the, uh, the pandemic uh, or, or not before the pandemic, but rather before, you know, the lockdown measures and the emphasis, you know, I think the, the social discourse moved towards the pandemic. Mm. So there's a very long report which the Commission of Inquiry uh, ultimately drafted and submitted to the president, which was which was then released for us, uh, you know, to, uh, about a month ago now. And uh, what then happened in, uh, if you read the report, I think the the report obviously the commission um, recommends a lot of structural changes, and I think that they, they're very very deeply deep deep seated changes to the way in which the uh, the public investment corporation functions. Now, I think it's important, firstly, to, to for people to understand what the PIC is. So mm. the PIC isn't a pension fund in itself. The PIC is the asset manager, which acts on behalf of your, your the government uh, employees' pension fund, various other other smaller other smaller state funds, including the UIF and uh, you know and so on and so forth. Now, the purpose of the PIC, and, and, and here we would then obviously look to um, the Pension Funds Act and the way in which the pension funds industry works as the asset manager, is to invest the assets of the pension fund in a prudent manner, ultimately in the best interest of the fund and its members. So that's the most important thing in that respect. The report obviously makes very, uh, very startling findings uh, with respect to the, the work of the PIC in the past, how the PIC functioned, how certain investment decisions were made, the uh, p- possible improper execution um, of uh, certain duties by board members, the, the lack of adherence to their fiduciary duties with respect to what would can be described as public money, um, and all of those components. And obviously, they're very I think if we, you know, we could discuss the PIC report for the rest of the day, but there's a lot of uh, serious findings on, on the way in which the PIC operate. Now, often because of the volumes of money which the which the PIC handles and invests on behalf of the state in this instance, it's often misconstrued as a bit of a, a piggyback by a lot of people, individuals in, in this instance, who always say, why don't you just use the money at the PIC? That, uh, firstly, from a legislative side, um, we have what we call Regulation 28, and I, I wrote something on this um, some time ago.
ago on the on the for example on the ability of PIC um, to to use its funds to salvage um, the the crisis at ESCOM. Now, obviously, Regulation 28 provides very very strict measures and parameters within which the public uh, within which pension funds can invest their money. There's obviously reasons for that. You don't want a situation where um, the board members, trustees of a pension fund, improperly invest pension fund money. There's no returns, or alternatively, um, you know, they don't disclose um, potential conflicts which, which which they have invest in, you know, companies belonging to their friends or brothers or anything like that. And what then ultimately happens is that the fund collapses because that will have drastic a drastic impact on on the economy at large. Because the purpose of the fund is ultimately to ensure that, firstly, the fund is able to survive. And secondly, and very importantly, that we don't have people queuing at SASA after working for 30 years. Now, and and that's a very important component. So I think we need to look at the PIC and the way in which it manages its funds with great circumspect, um, because those need to be invested in a very prudent manner uh, to ensure that they they are long-term and sustainable um, developments and benefits as opposed to your merely short-term and strictly monetary incentives. So when we look at what the uh, pension funds can do, We've seen, uh, I think Kasatu came out, I think it was in March sometime, and said, uh, you know, um, pension fund investments should be used to to uh, to combat the, uh, the economic consequences of COVID-19. Now, excuse me, that isn't a bad thing, but I think it's very important for it to be carried out in a very, very uh, coordinated manner, because I think it, it, it also dovetails, if you, if you read the policy paper from Kasatu, some time ago, which ultimately prompted the peace I wrote on it, specifically speaking to um, a very controversial debate in the pension fund industry, which is um, the debate on prescribed assets, uh, which is ultimately um, a legislative tool which governments use to prescribe what pension funds can invest in. Now, this was previously used by the apartheid government for quite some time. Um, you know, firstly, to to, to provide um, a source of revenue, because what would happen is that the, the state would prescribe um, a certain rate of investment in in state bonds, which are which would ultimately be um, you know in today's balance would be bonds in things like your um, your, your your state-owned entities and other state departments and you know um, state other state agencies to ensure they function and uh, and have a bit of uh, liquidity. Of course. The challenge with that is that you can't do that with underperforming state assets because that will ultimately have the cons- the unintended consequence of devaluing um, pension fund assets and yeah. which will have a very, very adverse impact on the pensioners who are meant yeah. to get something at, at the end of, the, at the end of uh, you know, come retirement. So I remember, if we look at... Sorry, Sam. I remember the one part of this was sometime last year when you were talking about bailing out um, SAA with 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 the pension funds and people are up in arms and they're saying, how could you think of such a thing? So just for an example of what you're talking about, mm. uh, potentially. I think it's a very important that, thing. Yeah. Well, I think there's been a debate on the use of pension funds with respect to assets such as SAA, assets such as ESCO. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that I think, um, and we saw that um, we saw something very proactive from the PIC and the GPF, who um, proactively engaged ESCO. Uh, with respect to ways in which um, they could potentially assist their, you know, their, their, their financial woes. It is, however, very important to make mention of this. 
the PIC actually holds a lot of bonds in a lot of these failing institutions already. Um, so a lot of people speak about this as though the PIC has had no hand or, or, or has had no assisting hand in these institutions. If you look at what happened at ESCO, the PIC is actually one of the biggest debt holders of ESCO. So they stand to lose the most from the collateral ESCO. But at the same time, what's been happening at, the, at ESCOM has been, it's, it's a bit of a downward spiral. And, uh, you know, they keep on putting money into bottomless pit. So there's been obviously a debate on whether or not what could happen, you can have what, what is called the debt to equity swap, where um, the PIC could potentially trade debt for an equity stake in ESCOM, which would diversify the shareholding uh, and ultimately potentially put a bit of pressure on the way in which the board functions and to ensure that the board is able to to function properly and optimally. Uh, but of course, I think uh, if you if you pierce the veil in both respect, you know, if you have the PIC uh, purchasing government bonds, you, you still really have the state purchasing what belongs to the state. So, it, you know, it does cause a bit of a, con- uh, you know, a bit of a conundrum there. I think it becomes even worse when you think of private pension funds, because private pension funds um, obviously invest in the economy and they don't. So often your, your state pension funds like the GPF or what we call defined benefit funds, meaning, um, you know, and I put it very simply, what happens is when you start working, um, they use a formula using your, your salary at the time in which you retire, the period of service, and, you know, there's a, you know, the actual, the actual scientists come in and, then, you know, they do their thing. And we're ultimately then left with a, with a lump sum. And that's defined from the day you start working. So it doesn't really change. So that's why it's called the defined benefit. Mm-hmm. And it is due to you at, um, regardless of what the financial position, uh, well, theoretically this is, regardless of what the financial position of the, of the fund could be at the time. With the fine contribution funds, which are which are also slightly but often synonymous with your private pension funds, the challenge with those funds is that these are defined contribution funds, meaning that your benefit at uh, at the time of retirement will be determined by the rate of contributions and the performance of, of your contributions in the market. Now, if you then prescribe um, the the investment of these private pension funds into underperforming assets, what's going to happen? The natural consequence is that your pensioners in private pension funds become disenfranchised and that they'll be left with less, less returns. There's obviously a debate, a very, very interesting constitutional argument. I remember reading something Peter Force wrote some time ago on it, in which this could potentially also be uh, uh, what we would call a uh, an arbitrary deprivation of property in terms of Section 25. Very interesting debate. But, you know, I think we'll obviously cross that bridge when we get there. But I think that's the... Uh, and this is more the legal side as opposed to just being the economic side and the financial side. So this is obviously the uh, the challenge which we face with whether or not pension funds can be used. So my opinion, can pension funds be used to uh, stave off the economic, economic impact of the crisis? They certainly can, but they need to be used sustainably because that money is the money which is meant to ensure that the very civil servants who you're trying to protect have something to, you know, they get some, you know, they do get some sort of benefit after the years of service. So if we use it sustainably and we use it to, and this is the argument I make in the paper, in that a functional economy is in the benefit of everyone. 
and uh, your GPF and your PIC stands to lose the most um, if the um, if the economy isn't functional. You know, the PIC is one of the biggest, in, if not the biggest investor on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So it's very important for them to, so they've got a very vested interest in ensuring that the economy functions. So I think it's about, a, it's, a, it's, it's obviously a balancing act and they can't be, uh, you know, we can't, uh, they can't be can't blanche in a sense that you just tell, um, tell pension funds what to do and hope for the best. At the same time, you can't leave, um, we don't want to leave funds lying idle. We want the funds to be used optimally to ensure the best interest of the entire economy, economic value chain. So that's ultimately, I think that's the, that's the debate with respect to, to how pension funds could potentially be used. And uh, fortunately, it's a, it's a very big industry. I think you've got a, it's a trillion rand industry, which certainly can be used uh, more efficiently in ensuring that our economy is able to to benefit from it. So I think there's a, there's obviously great opportunity there. Yeah, no, that's that's very insightful. Thank you so much, man. Um, and in terms of your sis what are, what are sort of the, the the three priorities if you were to 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 estimate that as a as a personal individual who is working um, in, in in either in corporate or in government, um, if you were to either protect three things or invest in, in, in three things um, over the next course of, of, of time for the next three, six months. Um, what should we be on the lookout for? Because um, at the moment, it's a bit sketchy. What's going to fall next if things such as big as Comair are sort of literally falling out of the sky? Um. <laughs> yeah, so, so it becomes difficult because, yeah. um, you know, so I'm not a, you know, I'm not I, a, I, I know economic, you're not a financial advisor. I know you're financial not an expert or advisor. You know, I'm just a, you but know, where, now, where, just now, where, where are you putting your hand? Where are you putting your hand? <laughs> I'm just an attorney who has an interest in finance. But yeah. where I, I think, so uh, what I often, so I, I'm involved in, a, uh, you know, some friends of mine and I have um, a, an investment um, company, which we have, which we, we used to invest in in small small businesses and provide a, an alternative source of uh, it's a bit of a private equity private equity vehicle yeah. now in my opinion um the future of the country's economy lies in your your small medium enterprises because those are the those are the entities that they are small enough to contain overheads and that's where you see real economic that's where you'll realize real economic growth your, your bigger players are obviously now sustaining the market share which they've built and because of economic economies of scale they're obviously sustaining the market share they've built over over decades and in some centuries centuries with respect to your much bigger 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 players on the on the stock exchange but you're really looking at investing in the real economic potential of your small to medium enterprises and that to me is the future um, I think that's where that's where we can really unlock um, some great talent. If you look at um, look at the American economy, for example, and a very good estimate is to if you look at the wealthiest people in 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 America. These aren't people that necessarily come. People like Jeff Bezos, um, you know, we've got um, Elon Musk, who's one of our own, and even Bill Gates. These aren't people that come from um, you know what what would be referred to as generational wealth. These are people, because of the way in which the economy is, is structured and because of an economy which is able to, which is conducive to innovation and um, new industry players were able to build an economy. You know, that's part of what they call the American dream. 
Mm. That's what we want to. I think that's the future of our of the South African economy. We need to develop a um, a space where we, uh, you know, there's room for innovation. There's there's room for small smaller and medium businesses. I think they they shouldn't just be perceived to be grant beneficiaries. They need to be perceived to be um, very important role players and stakeholders in the economy. And there needs to be some sort of policy and intervention um, in this instance to ensure because it's not going to happen by by way of Adam Smith's invisible hand, right? You need some form, some sort of very deliberate intervention to ensure that you escalate their position and um, get get those role players to a point where they are able to really compete in the market and we have a very competitive economy and a thriving economy. I think the Chinese uh, model, for example, if you look at the way in which that economy is built, again, not by your, of course, I think, uh, you know, very different political system as well, but not by your traditional old role players. You know, you've got very smaller and, um, you know, your medium-sized enterprises really taking production to a new level. And I think that this really gives a gives a great opportunity for the government and also um, your, um, you know, entrepreneurs to 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 really focus on that and um, you know, to develop the economy. That's very cool, man. I, I didn't know you were a venture capitalist now. Uh, I need to come to, to a certain your, extent. Uh, no, you do know. Shy dragon's well, <laughs> well, well, you do know. I'm still Karl Marx at heart. Um, I just <laughs> can't be a. I just can't be a com. I just can't be a communist in a capitalist economy. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Shai is is all played, <laughs> All right, all right. <laughs> Leave the GS out of this, okay? All right, all right. <laughs> no, thank you so much, man. We, we, I think um, when people get a chance to listen to this, they'll, they'll definitely have a better understanding of sort of where to hedge their bets, even if not like sort of given giving them financial advice in terms of where to put their money, but just in terms of what to expect and to and to look out for in, in the ways in which various legislation are being rolled out and look out for insofar as accountability from corporates in particular as well. Um, there's been a lot of um, sort of conversation in the past five years or so about how poor our consequence management sort of mechanisms are in the, in the country insofar as making sure that we, we actually make sure that people um, sort of do the things that the law requires them to do so, and if they and if they don't, that there's an actual consequence linked to sort of mis, like maladministration or, or, or lack of action. Um, in the past, unfortunately, um, quite quite a few of these corporates who are willing to sort of say will continue in uncompetitive behaviour because we know we're good for it financially. Um, what do you think is the likelihood of something of that nature happening? Because the payoff, the payoffs are big, right? Um, if, for instance, if you look at the hand sanitizer situation, that happened quite, quite, quite sort of, it was, it was, it was overnight where the price of hand sanitizer spiked up. Whilst it's not illegal to increase um, the, the cost of your goods based on, on the fact that demand is, is exceeding the, the availability of the product, but that seemed to happen um, sort of disproportionately to the demand um, and to the exclusion of some sort of economic participants. You would say, for instance, if it's priced 120 rand for 500 ml bottle of hand sanitizer, then it means that people who don't earn enough won't be able to have access to that too. Um, so for those types of things. So 
what do you think? Do you think that corporate will still be willing to play the the game of managing the the, the, the consequence levels or the risk levels, saying what what are the risks that I'm going either going to be found out or that the, the penalty imposed on me will be high enough that I that I will actually it'll it'll undermine my bottom line. I think in the modern economy, and if you you know just if you just read some literature on um, you know the future of corporates um, in general, your biggest risk nowadays isn't your monetary risk; it's your mm. reputational risk. Yeah. Because often what happens, obviously, I think hiking prices like that is actually unlawful, and often I think the uh, the perpetrator, I think it was Diskim in this instance, yeah, they're obviously they, being they, investigated yeah. by the by no, the that's a payback. I think the commission as well. They, there's been a finding already on that. I've forgotten how much they have to mm. give, um, in, in mm. so far as mm. penalties are concerned. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that. So, so, so I think that's um, you know, on the one side, it's obviously unlawful, and uh, I think more importantly, however, we what we see in a lot of. Uh, so I think part of what I do is that we I monitor a lot of um, <clears throat> um, regulations with respect, well, more, more in the financial services space, but also generally just regulation and law around uh, market conduct and um, you know there was a, interestingly a, an Australian um, commission into into banking uh, the Australian Royal Commission Bank, which um, was an investigation by that commission specifically into certain uh, poor uh, poor market conduct uh, poor conduct practices by financial institutions you know things like interest rates and the way in which they were ultimately treating um, their clients um, we then had the, the World Banking Diagnostic Report, which is a similar thing. I think it, it really waged a very serious investigation, interrogation into our, you know, as a financial services industry, you know, the um, the certain certain credit practices, in a, you know, credit practices, the way in which we, um, you know, complaints management, and ultimately the way in which clients are treated. And I think that's the future now. I think people, um, I think even in the, uh, you know, digital economy. I think that, that you know one of the key things will still need to be how consumers are treated. Are they treated fairly, or are you concealing things from a very underprivileged and potentially even disenfranchised majority who may not understand the complexities of what you're doing? And um, you know that's very unethical. And I mm. think that's the. I think we had this discussion with you some time ago in a different forum in which we we discussed. Um, you know, potentially having a, a future where we have patriotic business yeah. as opposed to business which is strictly driven by, by capital and market share. You want businesses which are going to be able to reinvest in the economy. And when we say invest in the economy, not just monetarily or financially, but importantly at a social level. Yeah. Because yeah. as soon as come entities start taking that that corporate social responsibility seriously, they you know they become patriotic corporate citizens who have a vested interest in the country functioning well. And functioning optimally that's the future i think that um, and i think that's what we need that's where we'd like to see corporate south africa in the next decade or two to um where we we no longer have this acrimonious relationship between corporate and and, and, and government and 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 you know then the working class on the one side who always you know making a noise there because what you want to do is that you want a bit of a harmonious tripartite relationship between mm. the three where I think people go into business to make profits. 
And um, I, th- you know, I don't think there should be anything wrong with that need to enable that. Of course, you know, Marx would Marx would say something different. But we we obviously want businesses to continue to make profits. We want them to employ people, employ people fairly, and treat them in a just manner. And then, most importantly, we want government to ultimately be a good referee uh, in ensuring that the way in which the the regulation, um, you know. Which, which regulates the relationship between us as citizens and corporate South Africa. It's fair, it has not too much red tape, but at the same time, is it under-regulated where, where people have carte blanche to do as they please? You want a situation where I think there's a very harmonious relationship and a synergy to ensure that we ultimately build uh, the country going forward. I think that's the future, really. Yeah, okay, no, that's pretty cool then. I think um, because also the, of the rise of the ways in which social media is able to hold these corporates accountable for some of their uh, misgivings, um, I think they'll be very scared to do something uh, untoward over the next couple of months. Um, and we hope that your work continues to be um, as comfortable in your social distancing mechanisms and measures. Um, that you, I, I, I think that even when we get to a point of level one, um, everyone needs to discuss is it really important for us to go to the office <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, well I think I think I think it's ultimately all a balancing act you know yeah. you know just take a walk around Santon you know companies have invested a lot of money in these beautiful high-rise buildings and these these you know these lovely workspaces I think it would go to waste if everyone stayed at home. <laughs> we obviously, um, I think that we do need to embrace new ways of work, but I, I, I do still feel there's great value in uh, your your very personalized interactions, uh, especially in in the corporate and business world, because I think that's how uh, that's how real and everlasting relationships are built. I don't think, um, you know, I, I love social media. I love I love tech and you know the ability to engage for, with you. 600 kilometers away that's a great thing but i think importantly i think it nothing will change i you know i do hope that we still get we get back to a point where we can shake hands again because shaking hands is a it's a very important tool of of, of building relationships you know this those personal interactions um, yeah and i think that's um, that won't change i don't see corporate necessarily changing drastically in that respect i think obviously there just needs to be a balance between uh, you know the workplace and people's personal lives, and uh, you know because I think we're apparently we're part of a generation who value personal lives um, slightly more than, than we do our work, and you know, and that's so it's, just, it's a balancing act. Really. I'm not sure if I fall into that category. That's how I'm laughing. I'm, I can see I can see you having some challenges, sort of interpreting that <laughs> in your mind. Um, but no, I, th- I think I, I hear you insofar as saying that there's still value for the office space and stuff like that. But I also think that there's room for corporates to innovate. Like, for instance, does one law firm need that amount of floors or a, big, a, a building as big as that one, for instance? Um, there, is, there are opportunities, for instance, to say, given our sort of valuing of SMMEs, to what extent can corporates start lending a hand and saying, listen, we've just freed up 10 offices because we realize not all of our staff needs an office of their own. Um, so come through, we'll have space for about five of your of, of, of the SMMEs um, for the purposes of incubation. If we say you have access to our, um, to our internet, limited of course, in, in some respects, but you also have access to maybe a boardroom that we're no longer using as, as often because we're no longer having in-person meetings when we, when we can convene in other ways. Um, so I think that 
in in all spaces there's opportunities to innovate uh, but we just have to and trust me that no, you need to trust me the bo- the boardrooms are definitely not going anywhere i think there's a power about sitting at the head of the table and saying and and, and people calling you chair <laughs> <laughs> yeah in politics and in corporate i guess so no thanks yeah. thanks a lot man the, per- the person is political yeah, yeah of course yeah. which is exactly the po- the essence of this podcast and and the why exactly. we're trying to 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 engage various professionals we appreciate your time um and we hope that uh family and everyone else is, is continues to to be well um and that we we, we can all prosper after this um that when i come to you with my uh, business plan you will you will look at me um and smile upon me with all of your venture capital investments well i'll sit there so and then I'll, <laughs> you send it through you know the guys so the name is rml so i'll speak to the guys at rml and be like guys this is a great opportunity and it will be great for our growth and you know it's 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 really good this is also very good advertising for our for our brand as well so i think there's obviously a, a trade off in this relationship right no we'll we'll talk we'll talk we'll talk offline okay. <laughs> so people don't know our trade secrets thank you so much man we appreciate that well thank you very much for the call uh, do you keep well brother sure